Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Welcome to the podcast of the Asset Management and Investors Council of the International Capital Market Association. Uh, my name is Oliver Tinkler, Senior Director of ICMA and Head of Press and Communications. The Asset Manager and Investors Council, AMIC, is ICMA's dedicated forum representing the views of its buy-side members, encompassing asset managers, institutional investors, private banks, pension funds, and insurance companies. ICMA is one of the few trade associations globally that includes both buy-side and sell-side representation as part of its mission to promote well-functioning cross-border capital markets. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Bob Parker, former chairman of AMIC and a senior advisor to ICMA. Bob has dedicated his career to the asset management industry, focusing on macroeconomic and capital markets research, primarily working with major institutional clients on global asset allocation. So welcome, Bob. Thank you. I'm also joined by Dr. Max Costelli, uh, Managing Director, Head of Strategy and Advice, Global Sovereign Markets for UBS Asset Management. And Max is also co-chair of the AMIC Executive Committee. Thank you very much, Oliver. Gentlemen, uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, I suppose to start, really, for many people, uh, the last week or so has marked a return to the office after a summer holiday break. Now, there's certainly been no summer lull in the geopolitical news flow, but for you guys, what has stood out to you over the last couple of months as being particularly significant and which may have onward medium-term repercussions? Um, let me just start by mentioning briefly five areas, and then I'll, I'll pass that over to, to Max. Uh, but first of all, as investors, uh, the whole focus at the moment is, is inflation declining and what is the speed of inflation declining? And that obviously is absolutely critical uh, in central bank thinking at the moment. So that's area number one that investors have been focusing on. Um, on the macroeconomic side, um, I think area number two worth mentioning is the weakness in the eurozone. And we particularly had some some weak numbers out of Germany. So um, I think you know, one area of concern over the last few summer months has been, you know, is the eurozone going back into recession after what is already uh, what has already been a weak period of growth? And then thirdly, conversely, we've actually seen, although the recent data in August has been somewhat weaker, um, there is a consensus amongst investors that the risk of recession in America is decreased. Um, and there is now very much a focus on the probability of a soft landing in the American economy. So, that, no, that's very much one positive uh, development. Um, I think, fourthly, uh, one has to talk about China. Um, and China has had a very problematic two to three months, um, you know, whether it has been problems in the local government debt market, uh, a big problem in the Chinese real estate market um, with a number of uh, real estate uh, developers under severe pressure. And, you know, you've seen that in bond markets, you've seen that in equity markets, and you've seen that in the weakness in the Chinese economy. Um, I think just a fifth point I would just add um, is obviously the ongoing discussion about climate change. And, 
you know, we unfortunately have seen over the summer months a number of incidents um, of uh, the negative impacts of climate change, whether it's been heat waves in uh, in Europe and parts of the United States, whether it has been severe flooding, um, you know, in China, for example, uh, more recently uh, in Libya. Um, but you know, clearly, um, you know, the negative events and the sometimes catastrophic events that we have seen recently in climate change you know, just emphasizes the urgency that uh, us as asset managers uh, have to employ our, our skills and resources to this issue. Let me stop there and just pass over to Max to to add, uh, you know, any other topics that Max, you think have been particularly important, or you may want to add or disagree with uh, my comments there. Uh, th thanks, Bob. Actually, I, I, I agree with uh, with the five points that you raised. So maybe talking about holiday, I was back from my holiday already one month ago. So I've been up and running for uh, four weeks now. And actually, I also just I'm just back from a uh, uh, quite long tour uh, across Asia where I had the opportunity of seeing uh, a lot of uh, institutional clients and also to get a little bit of insights about what is their current thinking. Maybe let me complement what Bob mentioned by also referring to what I see on the investment side. For sure, the resilience of the U.S. economy uh, is something that everybody is watching in the sense that uh, all the indicators point to definitely a uh, rising probability of a softish, uh, as I call it, uh, landing type of scenario. That would be in contrast, as Bob pointed out, to what's going on in Europe and also what's happening uh, in China. On China, let me mention also on the back of my of my trip to Asia, talking to institutional clients who are very close to China, also from a geographical uh, perspective there are some interesting remarks to make to be made on china first of all for sure the the recovery is weaker than what we were expecting at the beginning of the year on the back probably of the real estate sector but also of the geopolitical tension with the us which are continuing and these are i would call it a short term concern and uh, probably we will see more action uh, in the next few months from the government uh, of china to support the economy but what I find also very interesting about China is that the growing concern more uh, long term, if I may say so, which, of course, uh, are about the business model of China and all the regulatory crackdown, the crackdown on the private sector. There is a, a growing concern among investors there that this in the end will cost something in terms of growth potential going forward. And probably that's something if you take a little bit more the long term view which is, uh, is more concerning. So what does it mean from an investment point of view? Well, from an investment point of view, the focus of most investors at the moment is on fixed income. And it could not be otherwise if you think about the fact that the expected return in this asset class has increased pretty dramatically as a result of the increase in interest rates. But I think also the debate is evolving in fixed income. As you know, many investors were very much focused on the short uh, short duration bonds, and this was the right thing to do when we were in the middle of the interest rate hiking cycle. I see now a growing awareness that we might be very close to the peak in interest rates, and this raised the whole debate about whether it's the right time to extend the duration to take advantage of, uh, of the fact that we are at peak in rates, but also 
there is still concern about uh, uh, eventually a recession type of scenario in the US and long-term bonds, in particular US Treasury, are seen as the best asset class in order to edge uh, that risk. Final point, in all the light of what has been going on over the last year and a half in terms of interest rates, it was very interesting for me to see how the demand for alternative asset classes, real estate, private equity, etc., is actually pretty strong still. And this is remarkable if you take into account the fact that over the year, we saw the NAV adjustment in alternative asset classes, which, as you know, come with a delay compared to public market. This is in full swing. We have, of course, some negative sign for many asset classes, like, for instance, real estate, but also private equity. But still, there is a view that alternative asset classes will represent an important class for investors also in this sort of new regime where we are entering. So a lot of, uh, I would say, in a, in a nutshell, a lot of concern still, but also the, the, the awareness that things are not actually going as bad as we were feeling at the beginning of the year, particularly with regards to the probability of a recession in the U.S. Max, just coming back to your Asian trip, I think just two questions I'd like to bounce off you. Uh, the first question, and you know, I, I've spent the last two days uh, working with um, a number of large uh, Chinese asset managers who run Chinese hedge funds and Chinese private equity funds. Uh, and you know, one of the discussions was, yes, the data over the last two to three months in China has been weak. Third quarter GDP is going to be a weak number. But there is some optimism that as we go you know, into the fourth quarter and into early 2024, that that Chinese data actually could improve. And I'd just be interested in your thoughts on that. Yep. Uh, and the second question is obviously, you know, we can't ignore China's not an, an economy on its own in isolation. There are contagion effects, no, particularly to Europe and also the rest of Asia. Um, and I'd just be interested in your thoughts about those contagion effects, because as asset managers, contagion risk is something we have to worry about the whole time. What do you think? Uh, absolutely. These are all very good questions. On China, I agree with you. And the view is that uh, the bottom in China, if you can call the bottom, because we are not a negative growth in China, we, just to be clear, we are talking about the slowdown. So the bottom in the sense that the, the weakest point of this uh, post-lifting uh, of COVID restriction, it might not be too far away. Also, I believe there is a view that ultimately there will be more policy action. It might not come in terms of the so-called bazooka, which is what the markets would like to see, as we saw, for instance, in 2008. But it could be a series of different measures uh, all aim at supporting the economy. So there is an expectation that actually the, there might be a, a recovery, for instance, in equity price in China on the back of that in the last uh, part of the year. But as I said, I go back to the link between short and long term. The, the, in order to see a sustainable recovery in equity price, some of the big uh, geopolitical slash political issues surrounding China, I think needs to be clarified as we move towards the end of the year, the beginning of 2024. That's where at least for what we call the long-term investor, the current strategic focus on China is. In terms of contagion, it's very interesting. I would say, have I seen 
uh, investor uh, institutional clients in Asia moving away from their focus on China because of what's going on? The answer is not. If I, if we, are we seeing more capital as we speak being deployed into China as probably not yet because they want to see more evidence of this recovery? I believe that the whole concept of decoupling is a little is very misleading. There is this view that the world can grow in some way without China or that it is possible to completely change uh, uh, the link existing between China and the rest of the world and think about international value chain, etc. The reality is much more complex. And actually, there are some interesting data coming out now on the trade side. We show that if the uh, U.S. imposed sanction, <laughs> for instance, on or protectionist measure on imports from China, or there is pressure on value chain. What we see is that there is simply a movement of trade from China to other countries. So maybe China imports into the U.S. reach the bottom as we speak over the last few years. But at the same time, these are simply replaced by imports from other countries in China, in Asia, for instance, Vietnam, etc. So the reality is that decoupling is a concept more political than economic. Mm. And I believe that this, this awareness will grow as we move into the rest of the year and the conversation about the measures which are being implemented in the Western world. And I mean, protectionism in some way can also uh, will, will not pay off, as sometimes politicians claim. Yeah. And before I pass back to, to Oliver briefly, I, I might just mention that, you know, as we talk in sort of the, in mid to late September, uh, it's worth noting that you know, some of the biggest investor positions at the moment are major underweight position or a short position in Chinese capital markets. And that applies equally to the currency. And you've seen pressure on the Chinese renminbi. But conversely, you know, a near record long position or overweight position amongst uh, the investment management community and amongst investors uh, in India. Um, yep. So, you know, one one uh, aspect of our work as asset managers is obviously to analyze carefully these, you know, where investors are positioned and those shifts in positioning. Uh, and, you know, that long India, short China uh, position really stands out at the moment. But Oliver, let us pass back to you because you wanted to, I think, sort of jump in with the uh, the second stage of our podcast today, please. Yes. I mean, what are we now? We're, we're September, kind of looking ahead to October. And obviously, we're mindful of the devastating impact of the earthquake in Morocco. But at the, like you say, at the time of recording, we still believe the IMF World Bank meeting in Marrakesh will still go ahead. And, you know, to, to your point, you know, some of the key themes of the conference are building resilience, securing a transformational recovery and reinvigorating this global cooperation. My question to, to you both is that with those kind of overarching themes, what do you think buy side participants should expect to be addressed? Right. The the easy answer to your question is this is difficult. Um, and, you know, the IMF meeting planned for Marrakesh, obviously severe damage has, has taken place in Marrakesh. So actually proceeding with, um, you know, with um, that meeting in Marrakesh, you know, whether they decide to go somewhere else, I, I am, as we talk, I really am not sure. But uh, obviously that is going to be a challenge. Uh, you know, in terms of you know, the title of the IMF meeting, 
Uh, again, this is difficult. Uh, and, you know, if we look, for example, at the trade side, which, you know, Max has touched on geopolitical issues, I would just highlight that if you look at global trade data, uh, there has been a very clear slowdown in 2023 uh, in individual countries' export figures. Um, and you know, we've seen weak exports from uh, China. We have seen uh, Eurozone and US uh, export numbers uh, flat in uh, recent months. Uh, and you know, UK, where we're sitting, well, where I'm sitting at the moment, uh, the export numbers have been on a downtrend all 2023. And, you know, there is, to some extent, a Brexit effect there. Um, and, you know, one of the issues on global trade um, is obviously trade barriers. And, you know, we have to recognise that, you know, trade barriers are an, an increasing problem for global trade. And just yet another example of, uh, of that we've had recently, which is the Chinese restriction on Chinese public sector workers using Apple iPhones. And that's despite the fact that, you know, if you buy an Apple iPhone, all which we all own, uh, they are actually made in China. Uh, so the manufacturing is there. So that's just one example recently of trade barriers. Uh, you know, and we, as we talk, in fact, you know, we have another row between the European Union and China over um, electronic cars and to what extent uh, their manufacture and uh, export are being subsidized. So these trade um, disputes are, and, you know, you see this in, you know, in publications and commentary from, from the World Trade Organization, which will be an active participant at the IMF meetings. Um, these trade barriers are problematic. They are not going to get resolved easily. Uh, they were discussed at the recent G20 meeting in uh, in New Delhi. Um, and, you know, although a number of statements proposing uh, and promoting uh, freer and more trade were made at the G20 meeting, the reality, I regret to say, is somewhat different. So that's one that's one challenge that needs to be dealt with. Uh, the converse of that, and there's a big debate which the IMF is involved in, is to what extent globalization is reversing. Um, and you know, the IMF and a number of um, very learned articles would argue that uh, the um, that globalization actually is not reversing. Well, if you actually look at capital flows into the beneficiaries of globalization reversing, and I'm thinking particularly of capital flows uh, within Asia into countries like Vietnam, uh, in LATAM into uh, countries like Mexico, uh, there the evidence is very clear. You know, real capital and investor flows are going into those, those countries which benefit from regionalization versus globalization. This is not an easy subject. And, you know, my conclusion on the IMF meetings are, no, it'll be a good meeting. There will be good discussions, but it is tough. And, you know, the global environment on global capital flows and global trade at the moment is probably one of the more challenging than it has been for the last uh, 10 years. Max, you may disagree with those statements. Uh, well, no, I don't. But let me let me expand on them. And maybe I use the title of the key themes of the conference. First of all, let's also look at the for a moment, the glass half full. When we talk about resilience, 
I think it's. Uh, I think the IMF will recognize the resilience of the U.S. economy. There is no doubt about that. I think one year ago was very difficult to foresee the U.S. economy with this level of consumption, with this level of unemployment, when we were in the context of one of the most rapid increase in interest rate of the post-war period. I mean, there was a clear, there was a strong view that, uh, uh, in some way, the U.S. economy would not do as well as it did. So I think it would, they will celebrate the soft landing. I think that would be, uh, I would say, I don't want to say a triumph because it's too early, but for sure the Fed needs to be given the credit for if they manage to really be able to bring the inflation down, maybe not very rapidly to two, but close to two over the next 12, 18 months without causing a recession in the US. But I think the resilience also comes on the with regards to emerging markets, because even also emerging markets, and of course we have to be selective here about among them, but for sure the emerging markets come out of this phase, let's call it, of the interest rate cycle and and strength of the U.S. dollar. I would say overall relatively well. I mean, mm. I just remember when you look at the previous episode, think about taper tantrum. It was enough to talk about rising interest rate in the U.S. to immediately create strong headwinds for emerging markets. This time around, emerging markets have been very resilient. Mm. They've been raising rates much more aggressively than advanced economies, I mean, earlier in order to put inflation under control. And in many cases, they succeed. Some of these emerging markets are actually already reached peak in interest rates, and they are on the verge of decreasing rates as the global economy slow down. So uh, I would say this resilience of emerging markets, I think, will also be recognized by, uh, by the IMF. And then uh, I think there is the third, and I'm talking about uh, uh, the reinvigorating global cooperation, which is, uh, I would say at the moment, is uh, a wishful thinking, right? If you look at the world as it is, we you only hear talking about multilateralism. You hear talking about multipolar system. What also came out from think about the recent BRICS meeting, and I sense that demand for multilateralism is very strong among emerging markets. When I talk to policymakers, for instance, in Asia. There is a clear demand for moving beyond, let's call it the U.S. dollar-centric global financial system. The reality is that there is not yet nothing which, at least we do not see what this new system might look like. But I want to be positive. And also, if you read the G20 communicate, there is this strong, and in the end, despite all the political problems that we heard about this event, we should not forget that the communique comes from all the members. So if there was no agreement on something, it would not be black and white in that document. And there is a part about doing something about the role of multilateral institution, IMF, World Bank, WTO, which at least makes very clear that we cannot run the risk that what we're already seeing in terms of protectionism, barriers to trade, barriers to capital flow, to get even worse. I don't want to say that we should, at least we should stop this and ensure that we start to lay the ground for something, for a new regime, if I can really use this word, which, as I said, in the end, will have to come out from all these uh, uh, 
disorder, if I may call it like that, that we are living in at the moment. Maybe at the IMF, we will start to see some sign that it's possible to find a level playing field where emerging market, China, the US, but also India and the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, UAE, all these countries can in some way find common ground to ensure that protectionism does not really become a major factor which ultimately will decrease the growth potential of the global economy in the years to come. Hmm. Max, I'd just like to switch back, um, you know, away from the discussion of um, uh, trade barriers and uh, global capital flows and global trade flows to an area that you touched on earlier on, which is alternative investments. And, you know, one area which is incredibly important for our membership at the Asset Management and Investors Council is the asset allocation to alternatives. And, you know, I'm not just focusing on hedge funds here. I'm thinking about real estate, infrastructure, um, you know, private equity, non-public markets. Um, and, you know, one, I, I think sort of really uh, sort of three questions. Question number one, which is that if asset, is asset allocation to alternatives increasing or not? My view is that there is a, ten, a trend increase there, but I'd be interested in your view. Um, you know, second question is, does that mean the public markets are shrinking? Um, and you know, what does that mean for um, liquidity in public markets? And you know, recently we have seen pockets of illiquidity and quite serious illiquidity in uh, global fixed income markets. Um, and then you know, the third question, which is that if liquidity is a problem in public markets or becoming a problem in public markets, you know, do we as investors, do we worry about the lack of liquidity in, um, in alternatives? So uh, Anyway, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. My, my view is that the trend increase in alternatives is very much here to stay. I agree on that. I think it will it will stay, but also it will evolve. And it will evolve because, of course, we are no longer in a regime of very low interest rate or zero interest rate in some parts of the world. And it's pretty obvious that uh, it, when you invest in, in liquid asset classes, the level of yields that you can generate in public market matter. And that's exactly what has been happening since the middle of 2022 and is continuing in 2023. We are seeing the adjustment in the NAV of alternative asset classes. So far, it's been an adjustment driven not by the a weakness in the underlying asset, but more by basically incorporating the new level of yields that are prevailing in the world. What we say sometimes in the jargon, liquidity has a premium at the moment. This premium has increased. And of course, when you go in liquid, you need to take it into account. But what I mean about evolution of alternative asset classes is that the role of asset classes is changing in the sense that in the previous regime pre-COVID was all about uh, yield, search for yield. So probably there was a little bit, uh, uh, sometimes investor has uh, underestimated the fact that these are still in liquid asset classes. So you are locking in your money for the long term because they were not discriminating too much in the sense that they were looking at everything which allowed them to reach their investment targets, their return targets. Instead, now I think is the, the, the value proposition is changing. I hear more interest, for instance, about alternative asset classes. If we take an example of real estate as an edge, if, for instance, inflation will remain relatively higher, 
or even if we move into a sort of a stagflationary type of environment, has some advocate. We are seeing a, a strong interest about the use of alternative for investing into the green sector, into the renewable. Very often, you can only do that when you invest into alternative asset classes like infrastructure, venture capital, etc. It's very difficult to do that uh, when you do uh, in in public market. Now, what's happening in terms of liquidity and liquidity risk is something that we actually look at very closely. It's very interesting. One would have expected in the as interest rates rise, as QE is replaced by QT that the major problem would come straight away from the alternative asset market, which is in liquid by definition. In reality, so far, of course, we are seeing gating, we are seeing a slow, uh, funds uh, slowing down redemption, but we should not forget that the gating and this type of measure are aimed at protecting investors because, of course, you don't want to sell under pressure at discounted price. So that's actually something pretty, I would say, normal for these asset classes. But instead... In this new regime of higher interest rate and, and lower liquidity at the global level, we saw major problem in the fixed income market, which is actually in the treasury market or in the UK market, which are the one which are defined liquid by, by, by nature, right? And this is very interesting because this means that uh, we need to monitor that very closely. The real, there is a, a strong link between uh, volatility in fixed income market, which is, of course, is about uncertainty about interest rates, and the um, and the volatility in the and the fixed income market liquidity level. This is a very interesting conversation. It's a question of uh, a little bit the chicken in the and the egg. Is it the volatility which reduces the liquidity, or it is the lower liquidity that we have for a lot of reasons which causes volatility? I believe this is going to be a topic of conversation going forward with Dynamic. And mm. I know there is a lot of work being done in, in that respect. And I'm pretty sure that uh, we will come up with some interesting policy recommendation to address the problem of illiquidity in fixed income market in particular, which seems to me at the moment the most important one to monitor. Yeah. And, and I think before we pass back to, to Oliver to uh, to finish up, to conclude, uh, I think, Max, you and I need to just uh, briefly touch on one issue, which is risk management and what's going to go wrong in the coming months. And uh, I always say, well, whenever there is excessive leverage, um, you know, that is a source of problems. And, you know, we saw excessive leverage in the Chinese real estate market, and it's not surprising that uh, there are problems there. If we go back um, a... Uh, a few months, um, you know, we had a problem in the UK pension fund market with liability driven investment. And one shouldn't forget that behind LDI was actually, um, you know, a certain degree of leverage being taken in the gilt market. And therefore, that was very vulnerable to uh, the rise in yields, mark to market losses and margin calls. So that was another example of leverage problems. Uh, at the moment, actually, you know, we're all very aware of, uh, you know, real estate market problems, you know, whether it be in China, uh, more recently coming back to Europe, uh, you know, real estate markets are struggling in, particularly in three countries, you know, the UK, Germany and Sweden. Uh, and that's, you know, particularly in Germany and uh, and Sweden, we have seen signs of uh, over leverage in those markets. But 
Uh, apart from those, I think, fairly well-publicized areas, I actually don't see signs of major over-leverage in the investment community at the moment. But Max, do you think there are any sort of areas that we should be particularly worried about at the moment, apart from the obvious geopolitical risks? Yep, I agree on the I agree on the leverage that uh, is doesn't seems to me at the moment a major uh, quest of uh, source of concern. Although it's also fair to say that we need to see the full impact of a higher interest rate across corporation and investor because we probably have not seen the full impact. No. But uh, I would say that for, uh, for me the major concern is more about. Uh, the level of uncertainty which is still prevailing in uh, among investors. Because, of course, we are surprised about uh, the resilience of the US economy. Equity markets have been doing, I would say, better than what we were expecting at the beginning of the year, generally speaking. Many investors, institutional investors with diversified portfolio have been recouping uh, part of the losses that they experienced in 2022, in 2023 year to date. But there is still a lot of uncertainty about the future state of the economy going forward. That's actually, I can I can uh, refer to the fact that I never receive in my position at UBS Asset Management as many requests as uh, for a strategic asset allocation review from institutional investor as I did over the last few months. This is actually the main topic of conversation that I have at the moment. What is the right strategic asset allocation in order to deal with this level of uncertainty. And the uncertainty, of course, you mentioned geopolitics, but the uncertainty is also about whether in the end a softish lending will prevail or not, or we're going to have a recession in the US, and whether inflation will actually continue going down as the market is currently expecting or not, or we are going to have second and further round effects of inflation, which of course would put pressure again on interest rates. So from that point of view, it's interesting to see how investors have shifted back, I would say, to something which was has gone a little bit out of fashion in the previous regime we were in, which is scenario analysis, stress testing, the uh, extensive use of capital market expectation to carry out simulation in order, in order to do what? To achieve a portfolio which is resilient across a different regime of the uh, global markets. And I think that's very interesting. I know the scenario analysis was a little bit out of fashion. I believe that we are going to hear more and more of that. And I, I agree 100% because when I look at my scenarios and my portfolio performance across this scenario, there is so much divergence, which can actually change. Really, we are talking about several percentage points in performance, depending whether we end up in one type of uh, scenario or not. So from that point of view, I really, I think that's an area that also AMEC should focus on. There are uh, big macro drivers, but investors ultimately will have to do their own work in terms of uh, uh, stress testing and uh, capital market expectation to be sure to be on a portfolio which is resilient. Resilience, I think, is the word of the day, not only for the IMF World Bank meetings uh, coming in Marrakesh, but I think also for investors. Mm. So, Oliver, we're going to pass back to you because uh, I think we need you to to wrap this up and uh, conclude. And um, I, I would just comment that there is a lot of groundwork to cover in the asset management industry at the moment and amongst investors. Um, and, you know, I hope that uh, the listeners to this podcast have found it useful. Um, and, you know, hopefully Max and I will be able to... Uh, to update this podcast in the not-too-distant future. But, Oliver, over to you, please. 
Well, th thanks very much uh, to you both. And thanks to you for joining us on today's podcast. And, you know, goes without saying, in particular, I'd like to thank Bob and Max for their fascinating insights on all things geopolitics, uh, public and private markets, and, and asset classes. Our next AMIC podcast covering the markets will be in January 2024. But prior to that, obviously, there's lots to talk about. If you'd like to contribute questions for our guests, please do get in touch with AMIC via the email amic at icmagroup.org. And the email address and additional contact information are also in the description of this podcast. But until next time, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. And we look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.